All righty, kind of just get us all together here on the book of Colossians. Not going to do a full review, but I do want to make sure we know where we are because of where we're going. It's very important what Paul does here. But he basically begins the first part of the letter in chapter 1, <clears throat> building up the confidence of the Colossians. They have been beaten down by these Gnostics, so he spends some time, some time important, um, making sure they understand the importance of some things that they have done and what, uh-oh, there's no use crying over spilled milk, um, what they have done and what um, Jesus Christ has done for them. And, of course, he makes mention of the fact in verse 5 that they have a hope which is laid up for them in heaven. Uh, this is all because they had heard the gospel and responded to it. And because of that, you drop down to verse um, 12 of chapter 1. He has, it talks about how that because of what Jesus Christ done, has done, he has made them qualified. Uh, he has rescued them. Uh, you go over to verse 14, and it talks about how in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And then after pointing out that they were in a saved relationship with God, uh, he points out that Jesus is God, beginning at verse 15, and um, talks about how he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, verse 17 talks about how he is before all things, meaning that he has the preeminence over all things. He rules all things. Then in verse 20, it talks about how that he has reconciled all things into himself. And because of that reconciliation, we see in verse 22 that he can present us holy and unblameable and unreproachable uh, in his sight. And after making these great statements, as we pointed out Sunday when I taught the class, that you get to chapter 2. And chapter 2, we have in the first seven verses kind of a transitional section where Paul talks about how he wishes he could be with them and kind of is re-emphasizing everything that he has said and why he has said it. And so you get uh, to verse 1 of chapter 2, and he talks about this great agony that he's in. And this great agony is that he wants to be there. Uh, He wants to spend time with them because he wants to give them comfort. And he makes a point again in verse 3, talking about Jesus Christ, that is in him that is hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, you don't need any more knowledge or any more wisdom as far as the things that the Gnostics were talking about because you can find all those things in Jesus Christ. Then he makes a statement in verse 4. He doesn't want any man to beguile them with enticing words. And so he finishes up verses six, uh, 5, 6, and 7 making sure they understand how important it is to be steadfast with their faith in Christ, that they need to be rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith or anchored in the faith because this is what you have been taught, and because you've been taught this, you need to overflow with thanksgiving. So he's kind of added a, if you will, a bridge between everything that he has said uh, about Jesus Christ and the confidence they should have And then, as we're going to begin now at verse 8 and go all the way to the end of the chapter, he's going to be dealing with some specifics that the Gnostics were teaching, that he's going to show the the falsehood of it. So he's going to bring up almost every single aspect of Gnosticism here in the rest of this chapter and um, why it is wrong. So he's gone from something that is very positive, if you will, 
talking about the confidence they should have in Jesus Christ and how that Jesus Christ is indeed God, how he died on the cross to save them from their sins. Because he did die on the cross to save them from their sins, that's all they need because they have obeyed the gospel. In fact, um, verse 6 is a good uh, transitional verse because uh, as we talked about Sunday, it says, As ye have therefore received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him. And what did we finally decide that meant? What was the picture he was painting for us? As far as wanting to comfort them and make them realize their saved condition in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. There you go. He's making them think about the time when you became a Christian. And we talked, remember Sunday, we talked about how when you first get out of the baptistry, how, wow, you know, I'm saved. This is, I've got it. Uh, uh, this is, uh, God has forgiven me of my sins. But as we go along, doubts start to creep in, and we start wondering about our salvation, and we start thinking about all the ways that we fall short, and we start thinking about all our imperfections. Well, Paul is saying, Colossians, don't let these Gnostics beat you down about your imperfections, about how you're not doing everything they want you to do, how that they want you to adhere to their standards. You have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Remember like it was when you first came out of the baptistry and the forgiveness that you felt and the joy that you felt. That's the way you're supposed to live the Christian life. All right, so that's his summation of everything that he has told them. And now, as I said, we get to verse 8. He's going to start dealing with specifics that the Gnostics were telling these people they needed to do and why it is wrong, especially in light of the fact of everything else he has taught. So let's begin with verse 8, unless there's a question or comment anybody needs to make. Everybody's on the same page. Everybody's caught up. Everybody's found it in their Bible. Everybody knows where they are. All right. Very good. I'm on page 252 in my Bible. That makes any difference to anybody. Verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. All right. This one verse here, he has said a bunch of things that we need to talk about. Um, he says they needed to beware... And remember, this comes after he has said that you need to be rooted and have a firm foundation, a firm anchor in the faith. He says, you need to beware lest any men, literally in the Greek it's any certain men, um, spoil you. Now, King James has the word spoil there, but I think some others have something different. Cheat, cheat, what else you got? Now, I'm talking about after... Before we even get there, beware lest any man, the King James, has spoiled you. Take you captive. All right. That's what it is literally in the Greek. And that would be cheating you because he's cheating you of your salvation. Now, how in the world, tying to what Frankie said about cheating you and taking captive, how does that happen? Why does he mean beware that you don't be taken captive? How were they taking them captive? Now, Karen mentioned being sucked in by it. Well, that's true. You got sucked into it. But the idea in the Greek here is a word that means 
when another country comes and conquers another country and takes away the slaves. There you go. In verse 13, it already talked about how, in chapter 1, how that he has rescued us, how that we now have this freedom we didn't have before. We're no longer under slavery. So what he's saying is, don't let these men do this to you because they're going to put you under bondage again. They're going to enslave you again. They're going to make you their captives. Uh, I was reading something that talked about how that um, most false teachers in any religions, but especially in the Lord's church, false teachers usually aren't trying to, to save the lost. They're trying to kidnap the converted. Isn't that what happens when false teachers? They're not out to evangelize the world. What they want, they want to take the people that are already in the church and bring them to their side. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Um, and the reason why the King James uses the word spoil here, have you ever heard the t- term the spoils of war? And that's why they picked that word because they, they wanted to picture in our minds how that all these Gnostics, what they were trying to do was they were trying to, keep, uh, trying to have trophies. They were trying to have spores, spoils of war. They were trying to take those who were converted to Christianity and convert them to their particular way and have them under their tutelage and have them be captives under their thing. And so uh, that's what's going on. Uh, they wanted to kidnap the converts. They didn't, uh, that's what the false teachers were doing, and that's what Paul was warning these people about. Now, this idea of philosophy. Now, go ahead, Barbara, what do you want to say about philosophy? They were doing this, first of all, by philosophy. Uh, is there something wrong with philosophy? Very good. Philosophy in of itself is not wrong. Everybody has a philosophy, okay, in a sense. We need to understand here that the word in the Greek is the actual word that we get philosophy from. And philosophy, if you break the word down in the Greek, you got phileo, love, and sophistry, which means wisdom. So philosophy is simply the love of wisdom, okay? And we all should love wisdom. We, Frankie did an excellent class on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. It tells us that we need to seek wisdom. We need to love wisdom. And so what Paul, though, is probably doing here, when he brings this up, he's bringing up this idea that these men love wisdom more than they love Jesus Christ. And it's their love of wisdom that was driving them. And, of course, one of the key tenets of Gnosticism was a blending of the philosophy of the Greek age at this time, the Aristotle, uh, the Socrates, the others. And they wanted to appear to be very educated and be part of the spiritual elite and, and engage in intellectual snobbery. And so they would allude to these philosophers to try to uh, get them... Uh, onto their side and show how intelligent and wise and knowing they were. Um, this just happened to pop in my head. Uh, at school, uh, one of the groups that I have a lot of contact with are the sophomores. And I always like to tell them at the beginning of the year, do you know what the word sophomore means? Well, we already mentioned that Sophia means wisdom. And the latter part of sophomore is from the Greek word moron, which means fool. So a sophomore is literally a wise fool. And that's a good way to describe a 10th grader, isn't it? <laughs> but he's already, he's making a, a, a dig at these Gnostics 
by saying that they're trying to use philosophy to turn you or, or make you captive, become their spoil. And this is after he's already said in verse 3, talking about Jesus Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As Fred said, you know, their philosophy was pulling them away from Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying everything you need is in Jesus Christ. You do not need this wisdom that they're trying to put upon you. But then he goes on and says that this philosophy that they're telling can be combined with vain deceit. King James says vain deceit. What does that mean? Now you're ahead of yourself. In between, what? Deceptive. Literally, it's empty lies. What they're telling you with all these flowing speeches and all this philosophy and all this stuff are just a bunch of hot air when you can relate it to Jesus Christ is what he wants you to realize. But then as Karen says, he goes on and says, another thing that these Gnostics were doing is that they were telling them uh, they were going after the traditions of men. Now, how do you define the tradition? And once again, traditions in and of themselves is not wrong, depending on what the tradition is. All right, something that's been done a certain way. Literally, it's defined as that which has been handed down. That's why it's called traditions, that which has been handed down. And some things that are handed down are good things. Uh, some things that are handed down can be bad things, especially if they're going conflict with the Word of God. Uh, you probably all heard the old ham story uh, about the um, lady that would cut both ends off of her ham. And the husband asked her, why did she cut the both ends off of the ham? She says, I don't know. And, but we've always done it that way in my family. My mother did it before her, and my grandmother did it before her, and my great-grandmother did it before her. We've always done it that way. And so they went back and started asking all the family members why they did it that way. And they said, oh, it all started because my pan was too short. Some traditions are just foolish. And these traditions, of course, um, were ones that evidently had with them, we know from Gnosticisms, Gnosticism that there were those who tried to say that um, there were teachings that were handed down to them that only they have knowledge of. For example, they always were after special knowledge, so they came up with this plan that they had some teachings that Jesus gave that nobody else had. Or that they had conversations with Peter uh, that nobody else had. Or they had conversations with Mary, the mother of Jesus, that nobody else had. And this was some special teaching that the masses didn't receive, but they were handed down to them. And if you're going to learn what these special teachings are, you're going to have to come to us and listen to us. Um, traditions even of themselves are not bad, but when you use traditions to teach something that's contrary to Jesus Christ, it becomes bad. You remember Jesus had many battles with the Pharisees. Because they made their traditions, uh, they made the word of God of none effect. We talked about this past Sunday in our sermon. Uh, the traditions that the Pharisees came up with at first were probably some pretty good ideas for the purpose of just trying to make everybody more spiritual. You know, if you pray three times a day, well, you'd probably be more spiritual if you prayed four times a day. And if you wanted to pray four times a day, you could pray four times a day. But the Pharisees made it a law. And once you make it a law, then you're violating the word of God. And that's what was going on uh, evidently with these men. They were saying they were teachings that really weren't teachings from Jesus and from others. Yes, Flo? Yeah, 
every person can come up ways to, to improve their spirituality. Yeah, we all should try to find ways to spend more time in studying God's Word. We should all find ways to spend more time praying to God. Uh, but we also need to understand that each individual person has an obligation to carry out that instruction on their own. I can't bind how I do it just because I think it's a good idea and makes me more spiritual on you. Um, I remember the very first congregation I ever um, preached. Um, I went to visit a family who had quit attending. And um, I went to ask them why they quit attending. And they said, well, uh, right after we got baptized, the preacher came over and he made us throw away all of our albums, our rock albums. He said, you didn't need that anymore. And we just, you know, didn't think that was right. <laughs> uh, he was binding something that didn't, they, he didn't have a right to bind. You know, maybe it wasn't a good thing for a new Christian to listen to rock and roll, whatever. But, you know, we have individual judgments. We can make our own judgment in certain things where the Bible doesn't dictate. And it just goes to show you that if you start binding things that the Bible doesn't bind, just because you think it would be good for the whole, because it may be good for you, as the Pharisees did, it doesn't work out. And Paul is saying, don't let these men steal your freedom, first of all, by their philosophy, their wisdom they think that they have, because it's, and the empty lies they keep telling you, nor let them, tr- their traditions keep you from freedom. And keep in mind that involved in these traditions, these special teachings they said they got from Jesus and from others, it was for the purpose of controlling that person, uh, making them do things. He's going to talk more about that in just a moment. But then he goes on, and this is very confusing, even for people a lot uh, smarter than I am. But he says another thing that they were doing to spoil men or take them captive was he was um, going after the rudiments of this world. Some translations say the elementary things or the uh, elements of things, basic principles of things. Well, here's the problem when you run into this. We're not exactly sure what he was saying here because there's too many different ways you can look at it in the Greek. Uh, He could, this same type of phrase is used when talking about new Christians and how they need to learn the first principles of things. Um, It also can be, talking about um, the world of the stars and the moon and the universe. And so there's discussion about what is it talking about here? Is it talking about learning elementary things like your ABCs? Or is it talking about something different? Well, first of all, knowing Gnostics and how they put a lot of emphasis on the stars and whatnot, that most people think that it's talking about that. And also the reason for that is, is because of what he says in verse 9, when he makes the point that that God, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, it's like he's making a point that why in the world would you want to be ruled by the stars when you can be ruled by the one who made the stars, okay? But like I said, most people, not everybody, there's some that will disagree with this, but most believe that this is talking about astrology here, which was a part of the Gnostic movement. Uh, they had the uh, influence from the, uh, how you say it, the Zosterans, the Zoroastrians. And so they were into the Zodiac. Uh, they were into, um, you know, the horoscopes and that kind of thing. Um, of course, we see the horoscope in, in our papers today, and I hope nobody reads it seriously. I hope if, if they do read it, it's for entertainment. But there are people that um, rule their lives by it. Um, when I was... Old enough to know 
when my birthday was and how it fell into the zodiacal signs, I was told my entire life I was a Sagittarius. And then, what was it, about six years ago, they changed everything, and now I'm a Scorpio. And I don't know how... I know, I don't know how to act now. I just don't know what to do with myself. I, I was just living a lie all this time. And because uh, I thought I was a Sagittarius, a guy with a bow and arrow. Now I'm a stinger guy. I don't, I don't know what to think about all that. And, but we need to understand, we think about that being pretty foolish now, but you've got to understand during the time that Paul wrote this, this dominated the world. Julius Caesar ruled his decisions by the stars. Augustus Caesar. Alexander the Great, Vespasian, all were big studiers of, of, of astrology and the stars. And so this was something that was prevalent at this time. And they believed that the, the moon and the stars actually controlled your life. And then when you added it to Gnosticism, where you had the idea of God who was totally perfect and mankind who was totally evil, and you had these intermediators... That would be the stars and the moon and the angels. And so they would have control over your life. And so the Gnostics uh, came up with special ways to help you deal with that, special passwords to help you deal, to keep the stars from controlling your life or that you could be in a good relationship with the stars because you needed to have that. They were were the the people that were the go-between, between the ones that were the go-between, between man and God, if that makes any sense. And so they became your intercessor for the intercessors. And so that's more than likely what is being talked about here. Um, if it is the other thing uh, about the, uh, it being the elementary things of learning, the only other way you could look at it is the fact that they were belittling these people in that they had very simple knowledge as far as they were concerned and that you needed their knowledge. In other words, they were the educated ones, the smart, smart ones, the Gnostic ones the all-knowing ones, and therefore they would accuse you of being someone who was too small to think or had too little knowledge to think the way way that they did, so you needed their help. And that might be another way of looking at it, Uh, either way that it fits. But like I said, most, uh, at least all the commentaries I read, most of them believe that this is talking about uh, astrology and that type of thing. Any comments on that or anything? Okay. And um, he goes on and says that, uh, that this is not after Christ. In other words, you're not following Christ when you do this because he goes on and says in verse 9, as I've already pointed out, in him, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, the fullness of God was in Jesus Christ. And, of course, he's alluding back to the fact, as he talked about in uh, chapter 1, where he says in verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And he said that after he made mention of the fact that God, through Jesus Christ, is the one who created the stars and the moon and the earth and everything in it. So why in the world would you want to pay so much attention to something that Christ created when you need to be paying attention to what Christ is? Don't look at the creation, look at the creator. And that's the point that he is making there. But then he goes on and says... For, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And by complete, he's, he's playing on the word fullness and saying that you fully have everything that you need in Jesus Christ. You don't need to listen to their philosophies. You don't need to listen to their traditions. You don't need to pay attention to the stars. Everything you need is in Jesus Christ. Don't listen to them. 
But after saying that, he moves on to something else that evidently they were having to deal with. Verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. First question we need to ask ourselves here is why did Paul bring this up? The reason why Paul brings this up here evidently is because there were people that were telling him they need to be circumcised. Now keep in mind the church in Colossae were mostly Gentiles. And as we're going to discover as we move through the rest of this chapter, not only were they bringing in circumcision, they were bringing in the feast days, they were bringing in uh, the Sabbath day, they were bringing in um, the diet, the, the diet from the Old Testament. And the reason why they were doing this, the Gnostics, was because, you know, it will make you more spiritual. You'll become a part of the spiritual elite if you will be circumcised, if you will start following uh, all these other tenets of Judaism. You remember at the very beginning of the class, we talked about how that Gnosticism was a blending of philosophy and Judaism. Well, here's where the Judaism started to come in. And if anybody today tries to do the same thing to you, um, then they too are guilty of what we're going to be talking about. And there are some religions today who try to bring in the Old Testament as a means of saying you need to keep what the Old Testament keeps when you don't need to keep it, as far as the Sabbath or certain dietary restrictions. Paul's going to hit that very hard in just a moment. But here he's dealing with circumcision. And he's saying the reason why you do not need to be circumcised is because you've already been circumcised. And he's making an allusion to the fact that it's a spiritual circumcision. He says, "...in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands." Now, what is he talking about there? When were you circumcised? Well, he's saying that you were circumcised when you made the decision to become a Christian. Because what you have done, and he's making a play on words here, but he says, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, notice what he's done here. He's made a play on word. Circumcision, of course, in a physical sense, only cut off a certain part of the body. And if you don't know what that is, you can go home and talk to your parents or whoever, okay? But it involved cutting off just a certain part of the body. But he says the circumcision that you have in Jesus Christ, notice what it says. It puts off or cuts off the entire body. In fact, literally in the Hebrew here, where it says, I mean the Greek here where it says in putting off the body, it's, it's the description of someone who is disrobing or stripping. So you almost picture, as far as the Greek word is concerned, there's almost like a zipper. You start at the top right here and you zip your way down and you climb out of your, your, your body. Okay, That's not what literally happens, but that's the point that he's making is this, what they want you to do takes a part of the flesh, and they're wanting you to do that because it's going to make you more spiritual. Let me tell you what you've already done. You have taken the entire flesh off of you. Now, the reason why he brings this up again is because of another reason. What was one of the key tenets of Gnosticism? That the flesh was evil. Well, guess what? That evil flesh, they want to hang on to that particular idea. When you became a Christian, you took off that evil flesh. It's gone now. He paints a beautiful picture here for us. When we think about what we used to be before 
you, we were a Christian. Somebody might argue that before you became a Christian, you, maybe your flesh was evil. But now that you are a Christian, your flesh is not evil anymore because it's been circumcised because of what Jesus Christ has done. And just in case nobody could figure out exactly what he was talking about, he says, "...buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him, through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead." Well, when did this take place, this circumcision, that caused you to disrobe of your flesh, or caused your flesh to die? It says, "...when you are buried with him in baptism." Now, we've talked about this before. But um, baptism, of course, is a reflection of what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried in the watery grave of baptism. And then, not, he was buried in the ground. I'm getting ahead of myself. In the tomb. And then he rose again on the first day of the week. And he forever lives. Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 3, that we too die with Jesus Christ. We are buried in baptism. Then we rise to walk in newness of life. Here he's emphasizing the fact that when we are buried with him, first of all, we are buried like his death or buried in his death. Now, why is it important to be buried in his death? All right, first of all, can't be raised if we're not dead. But what about his death? What's the significance of his death? Well, he arose. Well, I'm talking about the death itself. His physical death. What did he do when he physically died? All right, he died for our sins. So he's making, a, making a, a point here that when this fleshly circumcision where we remove that old man, that old flesh that was evil, it happened because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so we're buried in that death in a sense. But he also goes on and, talks, and wants us to think about the fact that um, only people that you bury are dead people. And so there was a point in your life when you became a Christian that something had to die. What died? Well, the very thing that was talked about in verse 11 with the circumcision of the flesh. As the text says, the putting off or the removing or the disrobing of your body of the sins of the flesh. Okay? And of course, obviously, we need to make another important point that this word points out is that when a person is baptized, what needs to take place? They need to be buried. In other words, they need to be immersed. There are some in the religious world today who teach that sprinkling or pouring is an acceptable mode of baptism. Uh, I've done a lot of funerals in my life. I've never gone to a funeral where we just sprinkled some dirt on the body, on the casket. Except, let's leave. That's all we have to do. No, in order for a person to be buried, they need to be covered up. They need to be immersed in dirt, if you will, or immersed in a tomb. They're covered up. And so that point needs to be made here. But he talks about how that we're buried. And then he goes on and says, and you are raised risen with him. Now, folks, this, this is something that, once again, paints a beautiful picture. Think of, look at it this way. Our old flesh is buried. This flesh that the Gnostics talked about that was so evil, it's buried. And then when you rise to walk in newness of life, or as it says here in the text, that the same faith of the operation of God that raised him from the dead, it says also you are raising, risen through him, then you rise with a new kind of flesh. Not literally. I still have the same flesh and blood I had when I went into the baptistry, but for our spiritual condition it changes. Now think about the picture that paints now. Do you remember when Jesus Christ rose from the dead? 
He had a resurrected body. It was different than the body he had before he put on the cross. Now, I don't know how all that works. I know 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that this corruptible must put on incorruptible and this mortal must put on mortal so it can be brought to pass the saying, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? What that body is going to be like, I don't know. But I think it's interesting that they first of all knew it was Jesus and Thomas, what did he want to do? And I think the reason why we have that in the Bible, first of all, we have it in the Bible because we'd never know how Jesus was fastened to the cross without it. That's the only place in the entire Bible we find anything out about the nails, about the nail prints in his hands and his feet. But also it shows us that there was some kind of change that took place with Jesus' body. And how all that works, I don't know. But here's the point that Paul's driving home. When Jesus ascended to his father, what happened? Did he change? Did his body do anything? No. He just went up to his father in the condition he was in. Well, wait a minute. I thought the Gnostics said that flesh was all evil. I thought the Gnostics said Jesus couldn't really be both flesh and God. I thought the Gnostics say that um, if there's no way in the world that he could be that kind of person. Well, the point Paul is making here is that he was resurrected and we are resurrected and it's the same type of situation. He goes on in verse 13. He says, And being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened, as the King James has it, uh, probably y'all have brought to life, or what do y'all have? Made alive, okay? Together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. So, what has happened? How do we go from, how do we get from this point where he says that you have been circumcised, totally circumcised, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh? Because you were buried with him, and because you rise with him in the same way, that even though you were dead in your sins and uncircumcised in your flesh, he has brought to life. How did that happen? What does the end of verse 13 say? How does that happen? There you go. That's what the text says. That because of what everything that Jesus had done before in chapter 1 that led to the forgiveness of our sins, here's the point he's making. Don't you dare listen to them saying you need to be circumcised because it's going to make you a more spiritual person or a more elite, uh, spiritual elite person. Do you realize that when you became a Christian that you went through the ultimate circumcision because you put away that flesh, that evil flesh, full of sin, and because of your forgiveness of sins now, you have resurrected with a new kind of flesh in a sense, a new person, a new beginning, and therefore don't you listen to them. Yes, Cameron. Okay, in the, in the Greek right here, the faith of the operation of God, if you will look at maybe a footnote in your Bible, maybe some other footnotes, there's a lot of discussion about whether the faith that's going on here is the faith of God or your faith. For your, you have a footnote, you don't have a footnote. Uh, King James leads you to believe that it's the, the power of God, the faith in the power of God. Um, there's a lot of discussion about... Okay, right, okay. Um, the point that he's making is, in the same way that God was able to raise Jesus from the dead, you need to have faith in the power that he can raise you from the dead when, at baptism. In other words, he can cause you to walk in newness of life. The whole point of the discussion is, what happens when you're baptized? That old man dies. He's buried. 
He's done away with. You bury somebody that's dead. And then you rise to walk in newness of life. In the same way, God, through his power, it's by God's power that Jesus rose from the dead. I can't remember the verses right now. The Bible very clearly says that. That's how you also, by that same power, rise to walk in newness of life. Now, we run out of time. That clock's just a little bit fast. I'm only one minute over. I do want to make one point. Verse 13 is a very clear indication that if you want to be forgiven of your sins, what do you have to do? Go ahead and say it, Michael. They couldn't hear you. You've got to be baptized. There are those in the religious world who say you don't need to. Well, according to what Paul just said here, if you want to have forgiveness of sins, then you need to do what it was said here, buried with him in baptism. Anyway, we've run out of time there, and so I just thought I'd end on that note.